0: Welcome to the Fuji Love Podcast. In this episode, our guest is Saraya Courtaville, a portrait and wedding photographer in the business of photography for 17 years and also the author of the latest cover story for the Fuji Love magazine. Hey, Saraya, how are you today?
1: I'm very well, thank you. Uh, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, yeah, hi, I'm Saraya.
0: Hello Fuji lovers, my name is Jens Krauer. Today's episode is sponsored by Exposure X4, the new RAW photo editor from Alien Skin Software. Exposure handles all your photo editing and organizing. It also provides superb Fujifilm RAW processing. The new features in Exposure X4 include exceptional shadow and highlight recovery as well as powerful transformation tools that help you correct visual distortion. There are also smart collections which help you automatically organize your photo library. Exposure provides unmatched image processing quality for your Fujifilm files. There is no subscription required. Try exposure free today at alienskin.com and find out why it is the favorite choice for Fujifilm photographers. Save 10% when you purchase using the coupon code FujiLove. Well, uh, the Pleasure is Mutual. Let me ask you, as I always do in the beginning, who is Soraya Corteville?
1: I am firstly obviously a mum of a lovely daughter who's now 24, so all grown up and and left the nest, but it all kind of started out with my daughter Rosie really becoming a photographer. I had um I was initially a graphic designer. I did four years of graphic design and typography at Reading University, which was a wonderful experience. Um, and in my last year of, of my four-year degree course I actually had Rosie. So she came to my lectures with me and uh, started her university career very early um, and from that kind of point my life changed immediately I no longer wanted to be a full-time graphic designer um, so I took five years off and then when Rosie went to school I decided oh I don't really know what to do so I, I knew I'd always enjoyed photography I did it as a GCSE when I was at school then an A level later um, and that's the kind of journey my photographic career kind of went and and as such I've been a portrait photographer now for yes 17 18 years and and I love it initially I started as a as a, a an assistant in a commercial studio I didn't kind of go the university route again I went in as a as an assistant um, and kind of found that I worked very well with children so every time the commercial clients kind of had children involved in the shoots they'd always get me involved so it's kind of that's how my work kind of progressed into working with children predominantly. Um, I then was uh, I then after assisting I got a job in a very well respected studio portrait photographers where I was mostly doing again families and children and then after being there for approximately five six years I got my own studio and it kind of went from there so I've always worked with children um and it just my work really has kind of progressed to now where I'm doing a lot more kind of location stuff with the kids I'm also doing a lot of the NGO stuff which is obviously what the article is about
0: which we will dive into. I just want to pick up a little thing you said in the beginning. You said you, you first of all learned graphic design. It is that a lot of photographers kind of come either from an IT background or from a graphic design background. Do you feel like knowing graphic design and kind of the dynamics and the rules of how to fit something into into a frame helped you when you moved into photography?
1: Most, absolutely, most definitely. I think my background with kind of... Pu- predominantly my degree was was typography which is book design so it is fitting something to within that kind of rectangular format so that transition then into kind of fitting you know a 35 effectively a 35 mil kind of frame felt relatively natural for me i kind of had a fairly decent eye for it and you know you kind of do four years as a a degree level, you kind of learn the basics of composition and looking for textures and colors and things like that. So it was a a relatively easy transition for me.
0: So you're using the same skill set still today as a photographer?
1: Yeah, I would would say so, definitely, definitely.
0: Let's get a few steps back and, and get a little bit into your article because you actually start with the Woody Allen quote, using it as a reference about your life, saying that life should go backward, and that we all end up in a, in a in a state of pleasure instead of growing old and kind of <laughs> getting getting lazy and you know just getting old. So,
1: just, which let's face it, we all don't really look forward to that bit.
0: <laughs> I, I I fully agree. But what is the what is the significance of this for for your own life?
1: Um, pretty much because I I tend to have done things back to front. So, you know, all of my friends when we left university, they all kind of had their careers then got married, then had babies, you know, and and they've kind of done the fairly conventional way of doing things. I tend to have done my life the other way around. So my traveling life, I had my daughter at university and then my traveling life started pretty much when I was in my 40s, which I have really appreciated because I think I've kind of valued it an awful lot more than I would have done had I been, you know, in my early 20s. So, that's the kind of reference to that. It feels like the way I've lived my life has been a bit top to toe, but I'm cool with it.
0: <laughs> so you've still got a lot of time to enjoy yourself. Actually, I,
1: I hope, I certainly hope so.
0: <laughs> well, I, I, fingers crossed, and I hope the same for everybody <laughs> yeah. listening as well. Yeah. <laughs> let, me, let me pick that up. You, you became a very young mother. I can, to a degree, relate to that because my mother was 19 when I was born. Um, and uh, then it was on, just until later where you had more time. You're speaking about having time from three p.m. on in a day, and then starting kind of with photography when this kind of freedom opened up.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I always wanted to, my my career. I always wanted to fit around my daughter. So I always um, wherever I worked, I made sure it was only kind of nine till three or nine till four. And but the old, obviously, the elder she got. I was able to move my career into a different direction. She then went off to university at 18, um, and I decided that that was when my travel kind of life was going to begin, and it didn't stop. So when my daughter went off on her own university adventures, that's when I then decided to, I made sure she was settled in her first term, and then then I went off to Tanzania for four months, which really was the kind of beginning of my working for NGOs and working for um, charities. In that kind of sector as a photographer. And within that as well, I kind of wanted to push my own work at home. I felt I was becoming relatively stagnant. I'd worked in a studio environment for, at this time, about 10 years. And I think my work was getting fairly samey. I mean, I knew my studio really very well. And it was a really comfortable space for me. But as a creative, I wanted to do something different and push my work into a different direction. And, and for me, actually leaving that environment completely was the best way to do it. So I decided just to shut my studio down and go away for four months and kind of almost regroup and figure out really where I wanted my career to go.
0: But it's quite a change to go from uh, photographing children into that kind of NGO work. And also I read into your article, you were not primarily hired as a photographer, but then photography became a part of it or how, how did that well,
1: go? Well, you are originally, when you work in, in the NGO sector, they will employ you, well not employ you, they will, um, they kind of get you on board as a project manager. Um, but with the specific role as a photographer, so I did go over as a photographer, and there were two of us um, there was a photographer and a writer. so we were effectively a, a communications team and we would go around to different project sites and basically report on what the projects what was happening with the progress of the projects, what the volunteers were doing, and um, how they were engaging with the communities. and we would kind of have to um write stories to send to um, send back home, send to the volunteers' parents. And in that way, we would get more funding and more interest in what the volunteers are actually doing in these specific countries. So we had a, a, a specific role, but we were also sent out as project managers and not as parents, but as kind of um, carers, really, because we, we were looking after an awful lot of volunteers. And the volunteers that we... Um, took out with us were I think in the first project I worked in there was 70 or 80 uh, 17 to 24 year olds so there's quite a lot of them to deal with and you can imagine at that age they want to get into some trouble (laughs) so yeah we we were kind of uh, keepers if you like but most of them were amazing and half of them were Tanzanian when we went to Tanzania, and half of them were Either UK or rest of the world, so it was it was a, a balancing act of kind of dealing with a wide variety of cultures and personalities, and uh, and we were living in very basic conditions. So it was re- really kind of getting people's expectations of of what we were having to deal with. You know, most of the time we're camping or they're in um, home stays, and in their environments can be really quite challenging. So as adults we would be there to reassure them and you know an ear to ear to listen if they if they were feeling like like a, a lot of them got homesick in the first kind of first one or two weeks so it was just for us to be there to kind of a support network really
0: i think that's incredibly uh, important work but let me just one step before we dive into tanzania and also your kind of wow moment you had there if if I'm a a photographer today and I'm interested in in photographing for an NGO or to do something good with my camera, as you did this and you you purposely looked for an opportunity, how did you go about that? How did you find your assignment?
1: Well, I kind of ironically, I was actually looking for something for my daughter to do in a gap year, and I kind of stumbled across it myself and thought, do you know what, actually, I would quite like to do this. Um, she decided to do another A-level, so stayed at home anyway. Um, but yeah, I I'd, was kind of Googling volunteer positions and, and things like that. And and Rally International came up. I was looking at the older um, section for volunteering, and they, they were looking for a communications team. Um, so I applied to them. I sent off a portfolio of some of my work that I'd taken in India a couple of years back on holiday, and because I've always been interested in people, most of my work, whether it be kind of as a hobbyist or as a professional, is always dealing with people because that's the kind of area that I love and I get so much from, from my photography. Um, so, yeah, I sent off a portfolio. They said, lovely, we love working with portrait photographers because ultimately what they want us to do is tell stories of the communities that they're in. Um, so, yeah, I just... They gave me a a list of countries that I could choose to go to, and I had never really been to to Africa. I've been to Egypt and Tunisia, but not to what I would call really proper Africa. And so Tanzania became my first trip.
0: So you also talk about it in the article, once you arrived in Tanzania, you had this moment when you realized how privileged you were to be there and also to be a part of something meaningful Tell us about what was the emotion, what happened that moment?
1: Well, I think I had a lot, if I'm honest. It, it was so different and far so far out of my comfort zone. I mean, before I went, I was seriously so nervous. I kind of thought, my God, what have I let myself in for? I, this is just so far removed from my normal life. You know, we, we were camping. There's no toilets. You're showering out of a bucket. You're dealing with cultures and people that you have never dealt with before. And it is just so kind of far removed from what I normally would do that I was really, really nervous. But once I got out there and you realize that everybody the world over, you know, there are good people and bad people everywhere. But inherently, I think 99.999% of people are really, really lovely. And the welcome that we got out there and the sheer beauty of the country was just incredible. And a lot of times I would wake up and, you know, we we're in, a. I think one of the first times I woke up and we were on a campsite in a, in a school, kind of in their back, back playing field where we were building a, um, or the volunteers were building a um, kitchen so that the kids wouldn't go home at lunchtime because generally they wouldn't return but we were camping in their back um, playground and I woke up at kind of five o'clock in the morning as we generally did because there was nothing to do in the evening. So we were all in bed by six because it was pitch black. Um, so yeah, we're generally up at five in the morning and you kind of I stood outside my tent and thought, my God, I must be the luckiest person alive because the scene was just incredible. And I just stood there and just took it in. And then I got my camera out. <laughs> But it, it, it is I. I had that moment a lot of times where I just thought, my God, and we were in so far remote places. Most people when they go to Tanzania will go to Zanzibar or they'll go to Ngorongoro. and they'll do the kind of big reserves and and big beaches and things like this. But where we were, I mean, the villages were villagers were literally they'd never seen a white person before, so they're kind of pinching our skin. They've never seen straight hair. And as a photographer living kind of in the UK, that kind of seemed relatively alien to me that they'd never seen a white person. That was quite astonishing. But they were so remote. And I feel very, very privileged that I will be probably only a handful of people from the UK to have ever visited a lot of these project sites, which is, uh, for for a photographer, a really wonderful thing, because, you know, they those photographs are unique not only for me but for all of the people that went with me
0: do you when you arrive in such a place are you are you being perceived as an observer or more of an accomplice kind of communicating the cause of the people the local people
1: Oh it varied we, we're fairly lucky that a lot of our Tanzanian volunteers spoke really very good English so they could translate. Um, a lot so they could explain really what we were doing there and also I found as a benefit as a photographer going on these projects we're generally there for two to three weeks so they'd got used to me by the end of the three weeks they were you know they didn't even bat an eyelid that the photographer was pretty much in their house or you know in their back garden taking pictures they understood why I was there so it was really quite easy as a portrait photographer to kind of feel I was getting more natural images than, rather than kind of having to work really quickly to kind of get gain the trust um, so that I could get more natural portraits. It kind of was an easy transition to kind of sit. They knew I was there. They were comfortable. They knew what I was doing, the reasons why I was there. And as I say, pretty much we'd have somebody Tanzanian speaking with us at all times. So it was pretty
0: easy well as you mentioned you you've been a portrait photographer before where you have kind of a a setting a studio things are under control yeah how much of a challenge was it to kind of get the the photo reportage slash candid aspect uh, incorporated in your way how you photograph
1: um I found it fairly easy actually so which is probably why I've changed the way I work now I actually enjoy that more kind of candid I feel like it's more natural and it's a little bit more honest so rather than that controlled environment of the studio it's it's the kids are doing what they're doing I generally don't tend to get involved I will just sit and watch and observe I may sit and watch for half an hour and they know that I'm there and I kind of you know just every now and again I'll try and anticipate a scene or I will Um, If there's a story to be told, I'll I'll see if I can work that in. If I can see really nice light, I will, you know, manoeuvre myself so that whoever I'm taking the images of is, is, is aware that I'm there, but I'm not getting involved. So I try and keep them as naturally in their kind of environment and me not getting too much involved. And that's really the way I kind of work now with my portraits here. So it's kind of made my work with my kids portraiture change as well which is really nice because I think I needed that change which was good
0: it's very interesting me as a street photographer I'm, I'm a super fan of the candid approach uh, in general for photography and I, I recently talked to Kevin Mullins and he's I
1: heard that talk actually it was very nice very good I appreciate
0: <laughs> that thank you but it's the same thing I see more and more photographers who kind of make emotional work approaching or incorporating the, the candid into into their photography and now you even took it back now if you If you compare what you did before in the studio and now what you do with the NGOs, does this give you a sense of purpose and would you ever go back to go 100% studio?
1: I do do the odd freelance day for a couple of friends who I do studio work with. And I enjoy it, but I certainly couldn't go back full time to doing it. It's too controlled and it's too contrived. I love that freedom of being outside. I love the fact that you never know what the light's going to be like. You don't know what the people are going to be like. There's so many kind of uh, unknowns that you have to deal with. I think it challenges me more mentally to be outside. And creatively, that's better for me. I think the studio envi- environment was a little bit too yeah, controlled.
0: Do you feel when you do this kind of work, because you are the communicator for the ngo at the end of the day does it give you a sense of purpose and does it matter for you
1: oh it certainly gives me a sense of purpose because they use my work an awful lot which is really nice for me to see that they're getting you know they might be getting more funding they're getting more sponsorship for any of the projects and it's make this the awareness of what they're doing is getting out there and i think the, the images that we that they send out of mine are, and the stories, that, if I'm with a writer, they are fairly powerful. You know, we, we did really think about what we were sending out when we were writing blogs and, and things like that. So there was an important message as to what we were doing out there. And I think sometimes that can get lost without images. If it's just words, I think visually the impact of, of, of an image is, is, is stronger with the words.
0: No, I, I agree. And it's also part of your job then to kind of uh, edit it and bring it into a final form.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and sometimes we had very rigid kind of, we'd talk about what we were going to um, talk about before we went into the village. So, for example, we did a, an interesting article between a comparison between... Uh, a a female village elder and one of our volunteers who was also of a similar age. I think they were both about 56. And it was a comparison of their lives. And we did it uh, specifically for International Women's Day. And the photographs that came with that were initially quite difficult to take images. The the lady was quite difficult to take images of because she was very wary of me taking uh, taking pictures she wasn't sure i think it was an age thing um but when we actually printed it all off and then took it back to her she cried and it is now up on her up on her wall and she we we um translated it into swahili and it was a really nice moment for us to give that back and it was a really interesting article for um the charity to receive because the similar, similarities are actually fairly close not as far apart as you would have thought. So it was it was a nice thing to have. So that's the kind of thing that we would um, try and produce. So stories that people can relate to, ultimately, both sides.
0: I think that's extremely relevant work. Now, just because you mentioned it, do you print on the spot and then give the pictures back to people or did you travel back and bring her the image back that you took?
1: We, tr- we traveled back. So quite often, a lot of the projects we would revisit So we would go and initially introduce ourselves and then, because ultimately some of these places don't have much electricity, you can't get internet and obviously as a communications team we need to communicate with people. So a lot of the time we were based at somewhere called Field Base, and then they would drive us out to the separate projects and I think we had about seven or eight different projects at that time that we would go out to. So we would revisit and then yeah, take the pictures back.
0: Hello Jens Krauer here with you. This episode of the Fuji Love Podcast is sponsored by Exposure X4, the photo editor and organizer from Alien Skin Software that has just been released. Exposure handles every stage of your Fujifilm photo editing workflow. You can copy, call, edit and retouch and then export and print your images. Superb raw image processing quality includes newly improved shadow and highlight recovery. Exposure provides you with many other unmatched creative tools as well as with powerful organizing tools. Visit alienskin.com to try it free today and discover it for yourself. When you purchase, save 10% with the coupon code FUJILOVE. So Tanzania was kind of your first uh, um, experience in in NGO photography. Now, you're also talking in the article about going to Nepal in 2015 after the devastating earthquake. Can you share some impressions and what you encountered there?
1: Um, Again, it was the same same NGO. Uh, They'd seen my work from Tanzania and needed... Um, somebody who was going to do the job properly in Nepal because it was their first first new cycle in a new country. They'd only just opened up in Nepal because of the earthquake and they needed to really get some images out there and they needed to be fairly sure that they were going to get them. So because they knew that I'd been on a NGO thing before with them, they knew that I knew what to do. So they sent me out there. Um, it was very, very different from Tanzania, absolutely stunning again kind of visually and the people are without a doubt some of the nicest i've i've really ever met and considering what they've been through um it really is an incredible place to go and i would encourage anybody to go out and visit the um my task out there was to get stories of uh, people's um experiences of the earthquake which some were very very shocking some were heartwarming and some were really very positive so it was it was a real mix and a real nice thing for me to do and I think I collected about 15 or so stories when I was out there which the, um, the charity then used to obviously promote and get new volunteers to go to that country for the next couple of cycles so That was really important for them to do. But I was, unfortunately, I wasn't there. I couldn't be there as long. I already had work commitments back here. So I was only out there for two months, but, and I could have quite easily stayed four months. It was, it's it really is an amazing country.
0: Which is, which would be amazing because I I love to dive into subjects and just be able to spend weeks and months on in the same place. Just the photography also so much deeper.
1: Well, I think you get to know the area. You get to know the, I would always do a kind of a, 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 a walk wherever I was I do a walk in the morning, a walk in the evening and during the day I'll just be kind of documenting what the volunteers are doing but in the morning in the evening it's really my time to take kind of anything that I want to take images of and pretty much more often than not as photographers we all know that's when the best light is anyway um but you I would tend to kind of see the same faces which is really nice and they just get used to seeing you and it just makes life as a photographer a lot easier when you're kind of accepted. um and they don't mind. you know they 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 see me they saw me as a friend by the end of it, and they, you know quite often not I, we got welcomed in We went to one village in Kittany where we were due to actually camp, couldn't find anywhere nice to camp, and so they invited us into our into their house. We slept in one of their beds, and they fed us. And for these people who've got pretty much nothing, it it just goes to show you the kind of spirit of of, of Nepal, because that really is what they're like.
0: It's also what fascinates me personally about uh, the NGO photography is because to me it seems like that's something you have to do wholeheartedly. Like you have to give yourself, your personality, you have to be open and honest and, as you said, become friends. The personal engagement seems to be way higher.
1: It, it certainly is, and you have to be very... Um you're right. You do have to be very, very open with people. their Their cultures are so far removed from what we understand as the norm. And sometimes things would shock me and I'd think, "Oh, oh gosh, that's a bit strange. But then you realize that's they normal. So it, it, it's one of those things you do have to be very kind of open and accepting of the way people live their lives. and it really has kind of changed the way. That I look at my I looked at my life and also my outlook in life. It made me an awful lot more positive.
0: Probably also get more as you say, more appreciative of certain things. I when I was at Photo Kino just recently, I had a chat with a gentleman called Peter Bowser, which is a German photojournalist and NGO photographer. And uh we talked about um what's left behind with the photographer when you leave from certain scenarios in certain areas speaking traumas and how to deal with it and how to process things you see what's your take on that
1: yeah no I would completely agree I would completely agree I think you oh well I, I mean I, I've taken away so much from being in these places and, and it's, it's been a complete change to my life a complete change to my life and yeah I, w- yeah, I would completely agree.
0: Have you seen things that have either haunted you or that you had to kind of process when you were back home?
1: Yeah, there's a couple of stories that I've told. We once um, saw a lady getting beaten up at the side of the road when we were in Tanzania. And as a woman, I said to my driver, who was a big guy, and I think I was with another couple of guys, so I said, surely we can't drive past this. This is just disgraceful. You know I it made my heart drop to see somebody that happening to somebody, and they, no they said no, that's our culture. that lady won't feel like she's loved unless she's her husband's beating her up and to me, I kind of think, how does that even commute in my compute in my head that that's a reality for somebody but He said, no, if you get involved, Sreya, you are going to get beaten up and we're not allowing that to happen. So they were protecting me. But the frustration to see something like that, it astounds me. And, you know, there's certain other stories. Um, Again, I'm trying to think of another one. Most of the really bad ones are in Tanzania and they unfortunately do involve women being mistreated. And yeah, that that I found quite shocking. That I really did find quite shocking. But luckily, where the the thing that I found being out in Tanzania with the inter- introduction of the internet, their young people who we were working with were realising that that kind of behaviour was wrong. So you kind of hope that the kind of next generation hopefully we've influenced a few and it then spreads and with the internet they get more information and and th- hopefully things like that in the future won't happen but currently unfortunately it is Yeah, you
0: know, there's many places where another one or two generations will be needed to i don't know to to get rid a uh, quote quote of, of certain things that uh, yeah that are not to be accepted anywhere else around
1: No absolutely well they told me that if I had got in Tanzania they told me that if I'd been because I'm I'm a single mum and they said to me if I had been pregnant then when so when Rosie was born I would have been just shunned from the village and hoped that I'd been eaten with along with my baby (laughs) which was again quite shocking (laughs) but uh, luckily that has now changed and if you have single mothers now in tanzania they are looked after so that has changed so hopefully things are progressing
0: that's great to hear because also with that photography uh we're trying to bring hope and 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 awareness to certain things so it's it's uh, it's always good to shine light on, on that. that's important work for photographers let me ask you uh this year or coming up what are your next uh, what are your next locations that you're going to? What are your next projects?
1: I have no idea at the moment. So if anybody's got any ideas. Now I am I am thinking in the new year I may head to India. But I'm not too sure. That's not setting stone yet. Because I'm currently selling a house. And we all know what a pain in the ass that is. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah. Uh, I've, and I've definitely got another Nepal trip next year. So for the, then, but that's for a separate NGO. That's for the Gurkha Welfare Trust. So I do that yearly. So I've got that next November. So that's definitely set in stone. But yeah, I've, I've got a little bit of a gap. I normally like to go away when my my quieter months are kind of January to March. So I'm hoping to head off somewhere nice and warm.
0: So if anybody out there has a good cause for survival, please don't <laughs> yes, hesitate please. to contact. her. <laughs>
1: yes, please, please. And and, and it's, it needs can be anywhere. <laughs> can be absolutely anywhere. I am I'm, I'm trying to fill up a passport and I've got 2 years to do it. So uh that's my aim. I've got I've only got 3 pages left, so I'm doing okay.
0: Yeah, I know the feeling. I have a similar <laughs> kind of a, a goal for the next 3 <laughs> Yeah. it also just feels good to board a plane and get off a plane and kind of have a mission with with your photography
1: no absolutely oh, no, and and it's I do prefer the longer trips definitely prefer the long trips I did a, a fuji film um film with uh, in Marrakesh a couple of weeks ago with the xt3 and we were in and out of Marrakesh in two days and that was hard work so yeah I prefer the longer more relaxed trips so if anybody's got anything of of about four months. I'm your girl.
0: <laughs> Good. <laughs> before we before we dive into, into the gear, um, I just wanted to ask you who who inspires you? Like either what inspires you or what is on your bookshelf in terms of photographers that you look up to.
1: Oh gosh, you wanna see my photography bookshelf. It is rammed with pretty much everything. I love all images. And I think that has kind of come from my graphic design background. So I don't just focus on travel or portraits i've got books and books and books um so and, and i just i'm very image driven really so i will take inspiration from anything and and everything but people specifically that inspire me um just brave ones who kind of go above and beyond and and do brave things because i think kind of doing these trips the other volunteers that I've been with they're the ones that inspire me because it's a it's a it really is something that's unusual and you've do you have really got to take a bit of a leap of faith some people can't cope with it and some people go home um and it's the ones that kind of stick it out that I have a lot of respect for especially the kids because you know a lot of them have just come out of A levels or GCSEs and it must be so different for them but when they come out of it, I see how much they grow and they are really different people. So, yeah, they're, they're the guys that inspire me because I think uh, there's a lot of people that wouldn't do it, especially at that age.
0: Very well rounded up. I share your admiration for brave people and also brave photographers. Um As we are on the Fuji Love Podcast, let's quickly dive into your gear. As you mentioned, you have been doing a promotional movie for Fujifilm with the X-T3. But given that you travel the world and you go to remote places, you go to humid places, sandy places, what's your uh, lonely island setup which you feel like you can deliver on the job?
1: Um, Always the X-T2. It is a great little camera. I've got a X-T20 as a backup. Again, a perfect little camera. I don't use the X-T20 very much um, because the X-T2 is so, you know, it's just so brilliant as a camera. I might take both of them out if I'm doing an evening walk and have a 90mm prime on the X-T20 and then I'll have my long zoom on the X-T2. And they're really my two favorite lenses. I only tra- I travel very, very lightly. I have to. So I whack everything in one bag. I've got, yeah, as I say, the XT2, XT20, got the 16 to 55, 50 to 140, and a 90mm prime.
0: We know Fujifilm cameras work quite well. Has this setup ever let you down?
1: No. No, and bizarrely, when I was in Tanzania, I was actually on the Nikon kit, and it did let me down. Oh, um, yeah. Well, and it was a fairly brand new camera, and the paint was stripping off because it was so hot. The lenses were all going; the like the rubbers on the lenses all went. So, yeah, no, that was that was difficult to work with. But no, the XT2 Touch Wood has never let me down as of yet, and it's been in worse situations than in um, Tanzania. So I took the XT2 to Nepal, three times now, and um, Nicaragua and Costa Rica, again, which was super, super hot and amazingly humid. And not once did I get any problems.
0: So we can officially confirm on Soraya's feedback that the XT2 was more desert-proof than the Nikon.
1: Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah that's that's uh that's kind of uh
1: brave move <laughs> <laughs> maybe that should not go out
0: <laughs> well, I figured, but no i mean it's a fact it's quite okay i mean we don't have to yeah you know, the truth is the yeah truth.
1: yeah no i honestly i the xt2 the lenses are built so much more solidly the nikon used to really annoy me that the you'd pay so much for those lenses and the rubbers in the heat would just go all wobbly the glue would melt and it was a nightmare in the end whereas this as of, as of yet and i've been in as i say just as bad locations and the xt2 is is performed brilliantly and the bonus is for me i'm a am not a big girl i'm fairly small and carrying big kit around was especially in Nepal, is, is difficult so if i if you compare that down and make it lighter in any way it's got to be a, of a bonus and and as soon as I got that um, X-T2 it made the world of difference it also means I can carry my laptop at the same time I've got battery kit which means that the, the battery grip rather as well which I can obviously um, gives me more battery life because sometimes I might not be with I might be without electricity for four or five days so I, I generally will take Ooh, I don't know. I think I've got six spare batteries for the XT two, and that can last me. That can last me, and and with that battery, if I in Nepal they have something called load shedding, which means you only get electricity for two hours a day. So trust me, when that electricity comes on, everybody runs for the shower. <laughs> Every everybody plugs everything in. So having that um, the battery grip, which can recharge everything, was an absolute godsend especially in that location in Kathmandu that's you would literally just get two hours of electricity a day so without it I couldn't have coped
0: when traveling I think the battery grip makes things much easier to charge I never use it so I usually also run with six or seven batteries and six or seven chargers to the next possible power outlet so I know the
1: yeah yeah no no I could I couldn't work without it and I always back up uh, I'd always take a little terabyte drive as well. So that, that is my kit, pretty much. Oh, and hand sanitizer.
0: <laughs> yeah, I fully I really agree with that. <laughs> Wherever you go, all the way.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Even in the UK.
0: <laughs> Especially in, in big cities and airports. Makes a lot yeah. of sense. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Now, the question also is, as we've seen your promotional movie, when is the X-T3 going to arrive at your doorstep?
1: Oh, it should hopefully be soon. I, I really do want one. It, it it was a revelation to me out there. I mean, the fastness the of the focusing was so impressive. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm saving up for it at the minute. <laughs>
0: Yeah, because I, I, if one thing we share is I've been an X-T2 user ever since the first day this camera came out. And when I first touched the X-T3, I was like, wow, that's that's really feelable. It could be felt that there's an increase in speed.
1: Oh, as, as soon as I picked it up, you could, you definitely could tell. And it was funny. I had friends uh, saying to me, well, what's the difference? There can't be that much of a difference. And I said, wait until you try. But,
0: <laughs> there is a whole lot of difference yeah, there.
1: I said, wait until you try. Because... Although you could kind of think that doesn't make much difference. If you're shooting, especially travel stuff, and people are moving all of the time, it makes a real difference.
0: It absolutely does. Now, we're slowly closing in to the end of this podcast. And I would like to ask you, is there anything you would like to share with the Fuji Love community from either your personal projects, upcoming things, or just the general tip
1: Oh gosh! <laughs> Trying to be life upside down like I am. <laughs> no, and I think I think my message to everybody is uh, when I came, first came back from my travels is how much less I was now worried about silly little things, mm-hmm. and I think that's what travel and working with the NGOs has really brought. So, it ha- although it has changed my photography and it's changed and the way I shoot and the way I use my cameras and things like that actually is on a personal level working for an NGO for four months okay I don't get paid Uh, people complain about that NGOs should pay photographers do you know what I got so much out of all of the trips that I do I feel like I'm being paid so and I get so much from kind of learning about myself and and other people that it really doesn't bother me because it changes me in the way that I, as soon as I then come home, I can really reevaluate everything and really not worry quite so much about life, which I think, which I think we do far too much of.
0: I fully agree. And it might be also breaking news to certain people that sometimes, or maybe even a lot of times, meaningful work is actually not the work that makes you rich.
1: Yeah, no, 100%. It makes you rich in different ways. And it's certainly enriched my life. Most definitely. I've got friends all over the world now that I stay in contact with. You know, they'll send me messages. I'll find out how the kids are doing in Tanzania. And that's from three or four years ago. And to still feel that important in somebody's life that is thousands and thousands of miles away is actually far more important to me than, you know, worrying about silly little things. You know, somebody cutting me up on the motorway. It really, things like that don't bother me at all anymore.
0: Well, the perspective changes. Um...
1: Absolutely.
0: It was great talking to you, Soraya. Um,
1: And you, that's gone really fast.
0: Yeah, it kind of went actually really fast. But it's also maybe because we talk about important things and I think your work is important. Now for the listeners of the podcast, please check out Soraya's article. It's the cover article of the October Fuji Love magazine. And uh, when people want to look up your work, Soraya, where can they find you?
1: Um, probably if they want to look at my travel stuff it's on Instagram which is at Soraya Travel or if you want to look at my um, just my work in general that I do and there is a bit of travel stuff on there as well on my website which is sorayacourterville.co.uk
0: Soraya great talking to you thank you very much
1: thank you again very much